Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're talking biofuels, a potential bridge fuel to energy transition, or even a sustainable fuel in their own right. They offer a fantastic decarbonization solution, producing CO2 from terrestrial carbon as opposed to unlocking more carbon from fossil sources. However, they come with their own suite of issues, from intensive agricultural practices required to produce them, through to land use and other social challenges. There's incredible interest and investment in biofuels at the moment. However, which ones have great potential for economic and environmental returns, and which ones might end up burning investors? Our guest is Walter Cronin. Walter is the CCO of Green Plains Incorporated, a NASDAQ-listed bioenergy company that's been around for 14 years. Walter's had a long career in, in grains and grains trading, including working for Continental Grain. Walter, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me. So um, I'm looking forward to this. We're going to do a, a sweeping overview of the biofuels industry, ethanol through to renewable diesel, and really dig into the, the global policies that are supporting this industry, the market opportunities, and some of the uh, potential pitfalls out there in terms of unintended consequences, technology challenges, and so forth. Before we dig in into the particulars, can you just give us a, an overview of biofuels themselves and kind of what we're talking about here? The biofuels development is, is really something that began early on. Diesel had uh, concepts around vegetable oils as his fuel supply. Henry Ford had concepts around alcohol. We've got pictures in some of our facilities of some of the advertisements that were going on early on in the, in the 20s and 30s about alcohol for, for automobiles. So it really it is a, a concept that began early on with the development of the diesel engine, for instance, that the thought was that agriculture would provide the fuel for, for mechanization and for the engine development. That process was, was overrun by the petroleum industry that moved very quickly to provide the fuel for the development of the automobile and of the truck. And agriculture was supplanted to that as a supplier. It really wasn't until the till the 80s and the 90s when, especially in the U.S., we moved into a period of surplus production that policy began to form around supporting, supporting agriculture, reducing U.S. reliance on foreign fuels. We hadn't entered into the fracking developments and, and technologies that allowed for the expansive growth of petroleum fuel in the U.S., and we had a clean air policy that said we can do better in supporting the automobile and the truck with better fuels that include biofuels. In large part, that was done because we had the surpluses to do that. We, we were meeting our obligations to export food to the world in, in the U.S. We were meeting domestic demand. And we basically had trend line yields in corn and in soybeans that were basically pointing to a period of, of sustained surpluses. So all of that came together to support a policy of real expansion in total consumption of crops for the purposes of, of providing biofuels. And that's, that's, a, that's a policy that was uh, 1980s-ish and unfolded into the modern ethanol industry that really began about 15 years ago, 2005, 2006, 
and then subsequently has led to a new policy around vegetable oil consumption for the purposes of, of renewable diesel. So it is policy in the 80s and 90s really still unfolding unfolding today. Mm. But critically, and I think it's crucial to sort of emphasize this, is biofuels came around as a story of concerns over production, energy security, etc. It wasn't as a result of concerns around decarbonization and climate change. That story really got folded in over the last decade. Yes. As it, those two things have combined, both is a, it is a source of fuel and you've had these agricultural production has met the capacity where it can actually, it is producing in excess. But now actually there are these significant decarbonization attributes to biofuels that is really compelling and driving the story forwards. Yes. The decarbonization element was certainly not part of policy in the 80s and 90s when this is being formed. But ironically, as the world looks to decarbonize, looked around and, and looked at biofuels and said, aha, you know, here's a tremendous source, potential decarbonization, and especially with carbon capture and sequestration for the U.S. ethanol industry. That certainly wasn't part of the conversation back in the, in the 80s and 90s, but it's, it's, a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal evolution and potential for the biofuels industry that is being realized today. Yeah. And there's one other point I want to emphasize there, which, is, which sometimes can get missed, which is this is ultimately producing a fuel that's producing CO2, which it is, but from terrestrial carbon sources. So you're just using carbon that's already in the carbon cycle, as opposed to digging hydrocarbons out of the ground, which where, where CO2 is locked up, and actually adding to the overall carbon cycle. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Okay, right. Let's dig into ethanol. Yes, ethanol, again, I'll go back to what I stated earlier about moving into a period of surplus is corn yields uh, began to expand significantly and the U.S. began entering into a period of significant surpluses. The concepts were advanced. I think I don't want to be historically inaccurate, but I think it's correct to say that Archer Daniels Midland Company was, was really the company taking the lead on production and on setting policy around the production of ethanol. So we entered into a period of about uh, 15 years ago, 2004, 2005, where policy around support for agriculture via an an ethanol policy, it's still a concern about world supply of petroleum and the U.S. exposure to it. So a concept around self-sufficiency in the U.S., in energy policy, and, and this this would this would have preceded fracking, where obviously that unleashed the petroleum, the ability of the U.S. to provide uh, petroleum to itself. So in the post fracking, maybe it doesn't make sense, but we didn't have fracking at that time. Mm. So we had a view in the ag community that yields in corn were continuing to move higher, and we we were starting to enter into a period of step functions of really significant increases in corn yields primarily due to evolutions in genetics, genetic modification, and plus agronomic practices, this concern about uh, self-reliance in fuel supply, and then really an ability of the infrastructure to be built. And I think if you look at the dual mandates of ethanol in the United States, with ethanol with corn as a feedstock, and then the cellulosic approach with all sorts of other feedstocks. The ethanol 
industry and the in the U.S. corn farmer overwhelmingly delivered on the mandate to the point of excess where we have what we talk about as a blend cap, where we we we've where we have the capacity to put beyond ten percent blends of ethanol into the fuel tank. We, as an industry, the ramping up and the in the capacity to meet the demands, I think probably overall shocked uh, the fuel industry and in how quickly the ethanol industry was able to move into 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 ramp up production. Mm. So from a production-only perspective, uh, production-only on a policy, the policy was absolutely correct. The corn ethanol industry could meet its obligation. Today, we can exceed the obligation. And really, in the time frame, we, we've had one stress test around ability to maintain supply. And that stress test came in 2012 when we basically had a 100-year drought in the U.S. Corn Belt and severely impacted corn supply. But the ethanol industry was able to get through that time period and then return in 2013 to producing surpluses. So from a production perspective, the ethanol industry and the U.S. corn farmer have, have really delivered what on policy and what policy was, was intended. And it's interesting because that quick ramp up might become a relevant story in renewable diesel which we'll get onto shortly, which at similar levels of investment are going into, albeit without the same kind of necessarily concrete policy support, at least across the United States at a federal level. Can you talk about some of the technology changes that have gone on as well? Talk about proteins and so forth? The evolution of the of the industry is fascinating, actually, at this point. One of the elements of, of the ethanol industry that it, it really aired on was was building plants solely for the purpose of, of producing what was back then at the start of policy, 2.6 gallons of ethanol per bushel of corn, a bushel for all the European listener, listeners that drive some crazy, I know, but 56 pounds of, of corn. <laughs> Today in the modern industry, we're at 2.9 gallons of ethanol per bushel. Where the I think the industry erred, and we're starting to fix that quite rapidly, was a fairly low disregard for the product that came at the end of fermentation, which we call dry distillers grains with solubles. It's actually at the at the end of fermentation. It's called whole stillage, and it's and it's basically it's the remaining corn fiber, it's yeast proteins, corn proteins, and a distillers corn oil. If we're successful in an, in an ethanol plant, we've converted ninety nine point one or two percent of the carbohydrates of the sugars in, into alcohol. So there's no alcohol remaining. There are no sugars remaining in the whole stillage. And the industry simply had uh, simple technologies to put the whole stillage through a centrifuge, which in effect dewatering the product into a dryer and out the door it went with open air pads and, and stacking it up outside and, and feeding it to 80 to 85% of it going into the beef and dairy cattle industry. As we moved then to surplus production and then decline in, in fuel demand, or let's call it peak gasoline demand, then plus COVID, it became very clear for the industry that it, that was not a sustainable business model. Simply converting corn for the for the purposes of producing 
alcohol for fuel and disregarding the rest of the business or being careless about the rest of the business. The whole stillage had a component of it that is that is in phenomenal demand, and, and that is vegetable protein. My background is from the soy processing industry, and so I'm a keen observer of soy processing margins. And in the last decade for soy processing margins, and, and really the forward curve today in soy processing margins is incredibly profitable, incredibly sustainable. And, and actually the soy processing industry in the United States is, is back to building where we've got five announced plants uh, to be built here in the United States alone plus brownfield expansions at existing facilities that, that are going on. So what is the driver in soy processing? It's, it's world protein demand for soybean meal. So we as an industry had an opportunity because across our industries, we nearly were neighbors, the, the U.S. ethanol industry and the U.S. soy processing industry. We reside in the same places. In, here in the Omaha area, we've got, uh, we've got an ethanol plant on, on one side of, of uh, U.S. Uh, 29, highway and a soy processing plant on the other side. That's not unusual. So the protein component of the whole stillage was completely ignored and the industry just jumbled it up with fiber and sent it out the door. And it really was only the beef and and dairy cattle industries that could consume that much fiber combined with the protein, the fiber being the overwhelming majority of the product. Technology emerged about three years ago to begin to fractionate whole stillage into its component parts. So it could be fra- it could be fractionated and, and pure protein could be isolated. And that's protein derived from the yeast that's used in fermentation. And then the corn itself, the fiber could be separated and the corn distiller's oil, which all of a sudden is extremely valuable for the renewable uh, diesel industry. The yield on that could be increased 50%. So one of the technologies that uh, that emerged was from a company called Fluidquip, mm-hmm. Green Plains for us. We installed that technology about 15 months ago. The economics are very significant for us to operate uh, the machinery, fractionate the protein, sell the protein now, which which does not carry the fiber load. And, and, and the protein now uh, makes sense in lots of different rations, not just in beef and dairy cattle, but now it's an ideal, it's an ideal component for the pet space. It's an ideal component for poultry, for swine, for aquafeed. So that evolution, that change is occurring very rapidly. We're, we're going to install that technology across all of our facilities. Uh, we actually ended up purchasing the company, the IP the fluid clip company that, that had the IP around this technology. Others in the industry have, have announced adoption of it. And it's an extremely, extremely important step that the industry has taken to really make itself viable and sustainable because the, the original business model of just producing alcohol as a source of 80 to 85% of the revenues was, was a broken model in the last three years in the quote unquote ethanol industry have been quite frankly, awful. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because that's part of the broader narrative of the world being protein short. You know, and it's another example of what was a waste product. And this is also going on in energy as well, finding value. I think that's a a really good depiction of corn-derived ethanol and and how it's actually blending in with this renewable diesel story now, or there's a connection. Can we just spend a couple of minutes on sugar ethanol, particularly in obviously Brazil? What's the story there? 
I'm afraid that our, our cousins in the sugar uh, ethanol industry have shared our pain as well in economics and in margins. And the last number of years for the sugar ethanol really have not been, they've been quite similar to the corn ethanol industry. Uh, surplus production and an industry that has operated on very poor margins. Recent acquisitions, uh, Bungie Limited, for instance, entered into the sugar ethanol space and um, they wish that they had not because the, the margins, even at scale, have been extremely challenging. Surplus production been the hallmark in uh, sugar ethanol as well. And so the outcomes of, of using sugar as a, as a feedstock really have, have not changed the greater challenges that both of our industries face, which is maybe is approaching peak fuel demand in, in, on a world basis from liquid fuels and a, in a process of, of higher adoptions of public transportation and, and, and less driving, less driving miles. And, and it's to be seen the impact of, of electric vehicles. But just from a, from a perspective of total consumption for, for liquid fuels, the challenge has been very significant for the ethanol industry as it, as it has been for the fuel industry. The one element of the sugar ethanol industry that that is extremely challenging for them and their business model is difficult. Is sugar sugar has to be processed nearly immediately after being harvested. So regardless of the economics, the the sugar ethanol industry, if, if it's going to harvest cane, it has to operate. So surpluses have to be exported, and Brazil is the large scale exporter, primarily to the United States. That's a challenge with the feedstock that can't really be almost um, stored in regards to economics. One of the benefits that we get in corn ethanol production is storable during very poor margin periods. We can, we as an industry can withdraw from the market and tell the, tell the farmer that we're not interested in, in his feedstock because we don't have the economics. The farmer can store the corn and then as economics recover, we can re-enter into the market and, and take Take the uh, take the supply from the farmer. So the inability of the sugar ethanol industry to store its feedstock, I think, long term, is is a significant disadvantage. And I believe there's some recognition of that in Brazil. One of the elements of expansion, rapid expansion, actually, that's going on in corn ethanol is in Brazil. Brazil's ascendant in total uh, corn production. They're the number one soybean producer in the world. There's no reason to think that with time, Brazil doesn't become the number one corn producer in the world as well. Hmm. And so you have uh, you have some entrepreneurs right now significantly building out the Brazilian corn ethanol industry. So it's an interesting dynamic. Interesting, because of course, crucially, sugar ethanol doesn't have that protein component, which is becoming correct. so valuable, right? Correct, correct. And I hope next we'll, we'll go on to carbon capture and sequestration. That is also a difference yeah, maker. That's as well. what I was just about to ask. Yeah. So, so we've announced as, as Green Plains, and there's a, there's another very significant uh, pipeline that's been announced as well. But we've announced that we're joining the Summit Pipeline. Summit uh, Carbon Solutions is is the name of the company. And basically, what this gives us, I'll step back a little bit and talk about how the process works in producing alcohol. So, in the modern uh, ethanol industry has not been able to overcome a, a singular problem. And that is when we put a kernel of corn through the fermentation process, 
we release uh, CO2. So about half the volume, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that's misstated. A third of the volume of the corn kernel will be released as CO2 during the fermentation process. So when we explain the business model to people, we normally say a third of the kernel becomes alcohol, a third of the kernel becomes whole stillage, and then a third of the uh, the kernel becomes CO2. And historically, the business model across the ethanol industry has simply been to, to release the CO2 into the atmosphere. So if you think about that, we buy 100% of the kernel, but we only get economic value from two-thirds of it. And that's been a very significant challenge to the industry. What do we do with the CO2? With the, with the movement towards U.S. policy to sequester uh, CO2 as, as part of multiple uh, businesses, technology has emerged to allow the U.S. ethanol industry to capture and sequester the CO2. And we have we have a, a government support programs that make it quite attractive to do. Our CO2 is super pure. The source of the CO2 is the process of yeast uh, consuming the sugars in the fermentation process. It's super pure CO2. It doesn't need to be scrubbed, put into a pipeline. It's it's as safe as our prior processes are our legacy processes of, of simply releasing it into the atmosphere. So in, in regards to an environmental impact from a CO2 pipeline, the risk is, is quite low because of the quality of the CO2. That process is recognized by the California Air Resources Board as carbon intensity reduction of 50%. So we go by, on average, a 60 to 62 CI score to a 30 to 31 a CI score. We go to basically the, the same CI score as the renewable diesel industry. It's a phenomenal transformation for the for the industry. And and I'm not so certain that it won't change the consumer's perspective of what corn ethanol really is. Uh, historically, corn is a for many in the environmentalists and green movements has got a bad reputation. It is normally uh, painted as a as a as a product of big agriculture and and uh, poor uh, agronomic practices and soil fertility reductions, etc. So it's normally painted in a very negative light. When we when we show the consumer that our process is is more holistic that we are capturing, we're producing protein to to feed the world in a protein deficit world, and then we're capturing our CO2 and, and sequestering it. I'm not so certain the perspective on corn ethanol doesn't begin to evolve from consideration as a bridge fuel to really as a consideration of a, a sustainable fuel. And I, you know, I'm very excited for the development, uh, for the build out. And it, and it really has generated a tremendous amount of interest at Green Plains. I'm sure for the other announced pipeline, they're getting it as well. But it's not impossible to say that in the next four to five years, nearly 100 percent of the of the U.S. ethanol industry is capturing and sequestering that one third of the kernel that we've never been able to receive economic value. And we basically have just released into the atmosphere. Thanks for that. I think that gives us a really good overview of obviously biofuels in general, but ethanol in particular and the various sources. 
we did a, a full episode on renewable diesel with um, JW Hackett, so listeners can go back and listen to that and the sort of the deep dive on it. It'd be great just to get your quick take on you know renewable diesel is clearly a hot topic. It has some fantastic applications. Obviously, it's got green credentials. Can you just give us a bit of an overview? And it seems like a tricky story in the sense that there is at the moment very limited supply of oils. You're seeing cost of waste oils going up, not necessarily at these all of these oils coming from sustainable sources. And then you've also got at the moment a significant amount of investment going on in new frackers and so forth to create, a, create renewable diesel. Can you just give us, a, I guess, a, a landscape overview of, and your take on it? Yeah, I like what you said about some of the oils uh, not being so sustainable. So the feedstock for renewable diesel and it can really be divided into two categories, and 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 that is the the waste oils, which are sustainable, and then the clean oils, which are basically the same oils that we use in our everyday life and are an important source of many diets in the world. Uh, India, for instance, has a very high usage of vegetable oils in their in their diets. This division of the sustainable and and or the waste oils and and the clean oils, the waste oils are are sustainable. Used cooking oils, greases, distiller's corn oil, which we produce in our processes and, and is not used or is not further refined into food oils in the United States. It enters into industrial processes. It is used in, in feeding some animals, but uh, but it is used in industrial processes. So it's an ideal feedstock for the renewable diesel industry. Where policy um, has not made the differentiation is, I think, a, a real source of potential problem. Clean oils as a whole for, are primarily produced in the United States via soy processing. Uh, soy is the, the largest component, and then we, we have some minor oils after that. Soybean oil is used in the United States for, for all the same purposes. It's used around around the world. It's used in food production, frying for various restaurant uh, industries. It's a key component, for instance, in French fries, which obviously is uh, is an attractant in companies like McDonald's and fast food chains, etc. So it, it is a it is historically been primarily a food component in the U.S. with a, a minority for export, and then. The biodiesel industry has, has been has been a small but growing component. And since you've covered that in another episode, I won't get in, into that detail. Along comes uh, policy to support renewable diesel. Renewable diesel is basically a process that is not chemical. It can go directly into current current logistics, uh, current processing capacity for the for the fuels industry. And it's being incented via policy with significant economics where it will swamp the biodiesel industry in its ability to procure their consumption. So we're, we're going to have a dramatic reduction in U.S. Uh, biodiesel production. We're going to probably zero out U.S. exports that, that, that are going to destinations that are deficit in, in veg oils. And we're going to have this phenomenal increase in total demand that really it is not sustainable. Even, even if 50% of the projects announced in the U.S. are, are produced, the demand shock to the balance sheet, the U.S. soybean oil uh, balance sheet cannot be sustained. It's, it's overwhelming. I'll touch on this for two, two significant reasons. The world is very concerned about acreage 
expansion for crops around the world, but it's particularly concerned about acreage expansion in sensitive areas of the world. And, and higher veg oil prices necessarily send an economic message to two places in the world that would love to expand acreage, but I don't think the consumer wants that to happen. And those two places in the world would be Indonesia for palm production and Brazil for soy production. So it, it becomes it becomes a, a policy that is loaded with unintended consequences. One is extremely sharply higher vegetable oil prices, which have real impact in, in countries like, like India and in the Middle East, where, who are significant consumers of imported vegetable oils. And then it, it sends this signal to Indonesia and Brazil to get going on acreage expansion, Indonesian for palm and, and Brazil for soy, that the world just doesn't want. They don't want to see acreage expansion really anywhere in the world and specifically in sensitive uh, areas of the world. So policy is, uh, is policy has got problems. It's, it, it's got unintended consequences necessarily mean that the, the U.S. is producing uh, significant amounts of renewable diesel from what will be a, a limited feedstock. And we can't have an interchange in, in the U.S. with palm oils from Indonesia uh, or soybean oils from Brazil because that policy would not be acceptable either. So an, an enormous concentration on demand, specifically on U.S. soybean oil, driving prices to levels that I think will probably shock policymakers. And it's going to put it's going to put policymakers under a tremendous amount of pressure somewhere in the future to reconcile this food, this food to fuel issue. So the, the food to fuel debate, which has been fairly uh, quiet over the last decade due to surpluses around the world, become, comes front and center. And it's going to be specifically concentrated on U.S. policy. Because hmm. at the moment, I'm correct in thinking that all this is a reaction to ultimately, really, California's low carbon fuel standards. We're not really even at a, a consistent, coherent federal policy. Absolutely. And there are imminent low carbon fuel standards that, the, and I, I believe personally that the California Air Resources Board set a standard and it will be relatively easily adopted by other states other regions in the United States, increasing the demand for renewable diesel. But it, it is California today, as, as you stated, and, and production to support California demand is nearly impossible. When other states in the United States or regions adopt, and then if we move to a national standard, all of that will require additional build-out, additional demand for the, for the feedstocks, and it's sort of concentrating again this policy risk around do we really want a policy supporting not only the sustainable oils, the waste oils, but also the clean oils that are used for food purposes as well? Do we really want that as, as policy? And I think that the renewable diesel industry, for, for, for those who are building plants based on clean oils as their feedstock, potentially have some real problems in, in the future with the sustainability of, of the business model. So I want to dig into this a bit, because can you first of all touch on, because the, the same thing is playing out in Europe, right? Okay, it's slightly different. Um, rather than soy, it's rape and so forth that's that's being used. 
as yes. well as the waste oils. This is a, a European and a US story. You've got policy supporting renewable diesel because it is, you know, it on the face of it, if you're using waste oils, is an excellent at least bridge fuel on our route to, to EVs and so forth. There's lots of investment going on. There's two questions I have. One is, at the moment, are waste oils and clean oils pricing the same? Are these organizations who are putting in investments on facilities to create renewable diesel, you know, are they already getting shocked by the feedstock prices they're seeing? How are they factoring that into their models? I absolutely believe they're, they're being uh, shocked. I think the build-out of, of renewable diesel has been in large part by, by companies without agricultural backgrounds. And I, I, not to be unkind uh, to anyone, but I think that the general thinking is, uh, is from the, fr- from the fuel industry or the petroleum industry that if we just drill 10 feet uh, deeper, we'll hit the mother load of soybean oil. And that's just not the case. There's an agronomic cycle that occurs year in and year out to produce these. And they're not readily available in storage. And we are, are drawing down supplies uh, around the world. And, and I think we'll get to the point where supplies will be extremely tight. The risk to the agronomic cycle then will become very clear to the to the renewable diesel industry. The, I think they'll be shocked to hear, well, maybe we're not. The current uh, extreme weather that we're having in parts of the U.S., may limit uh, total soybean production. And, and, and so the balance sheet is going to be even tighter. And I think for a lot of, uh, or could be, and I think for a lot of people in the renewable diesel industry, they'll be, wait, wait, what happened? You know, it would, it would be a complete surprise that the supply is, is renewed every year and there's an agronomic cycle and it doesn't, it doesn't sit underground in reservoir waiting to be drilled. It has to be grown, processed uh, every year. It's a much more and dynamic the, model, right? That you're... Much more, much more. And, 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 and the, the risk attendant to it is, is, is significant. And I, my personal observation is I, I haven't seen a lot of recognition of that from people in the renewable diesel space. Mm. It's going to be a significant opportunity for traders. <laughs> it, it already has been. Yeah. It already has been. But just to make a point, one of one of the elements of this of this year is this incredible, incredible movement of the curve from in the in the words of the energy industry from contango into backwardation, uh, breathtaking almost in, in the way that the that the move occurred over the last six months. The backwardated curve then sends the signal to the renewable diesel producer with a with a project that might not be ready for for two to three years is well okay the spot price is extremely high but look out there on, on the future and 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 there'll be you know there'll be there'll be lower prices there and I can I can operate my my facility profitably the question will be does this demand keep a curve in backwardation and do they do the extremely high spot prices keep rolling up over time and from my perspective and from the from the way that I look at uh, the forward balance sheet, that's the world we're going to be operating in for quite a while. So supply and supply, readily available spot supplies, I think, to your point, have been quite a surprise for the renewable diesel industry. If you cast forwards on this, do you see a point when, and there's so many similarities, I mean, the unintended consequences, for example, of, of EVs replacing the internal combustion engine is the entire metal and battery supply chain uh, has its own issues, not least in scalability. 
there's always this sort of uh, more nuanced picture when you start really digging into this and trying to reach the scale that really is demanded by the transportation industry, you know, to keep us in, you know, at a similar level to the levels of consumption we're at right now. Yes. Yeah. And and that goes back to the to to the point too of where I think if the renewable diesel industry looked at the the ability of the U.S. to produce and and supply the ethanol industry, which it has done, one of the things that it probably is taken for granted is is that the U.S. soy processing industry overwhelmingly, and then the waste oils industry can supply all the feedstock that it needs. The reality is that the price signal that that requires necessarily sends a price signal, as I was saying earlier, to the palm producer in in Indonesia and the soy producer in Brazil. And and that's where policy will uh, policy and and, and the sort of unintended consequence will will meet together because you'll, you'll have a bunch of world bodies that will say, wait a second, these veg oil prices are so high, they're burning jungles in Indonesia again and, and planting palm. Those elements of policy today and how it supports consumption of vegetable oils probably haven't been considered by the renewable diesel industry, but it's coming. There's, there's, already, been, there's already been some early UN organizations uh, that have begun to question policy. And that, that's with vegetable oil prices at 60 cents a pound um, at, at, at $1,200 a ton. We can go much higher from these prices, especially with projects that are coming online in 2022 and 2023 in the U.S. And there's there's a, the potential for prices to really move sharply higher from from the 60 cent level. And at that point, I think, we will promote acreage expansion in these sensitive places around the world. And now we've got the unintended consequence playing out. And I'm not so certain that um, that the policy isn't sort of the trail doesn't come all the way back to California. And with, with lots of entities coming to California saying, why are you promoting this? Why are you doing this? Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating picture you paint. Yeah, but there's there's lots of money at risk. There's yeah, yeah. Lots of there's projects. lots of. It'll be quite the bloodbath, I think. I'm afraid it, it has the potential for that. Yes, it does. So we've we've started to touch on policy. Let's move on to that. We've talked about the low carbon fuel standards in California and and what it's driving. And you think that that very simply could be just expanded across the U.S. What is the rest of the, you know where are we at in terms of the global policy support for biofuels in general and ethanol or renewable diesel and even others uh, in particular? Yeah, I would say on a world basis, a bit in flux. On the one hand, in the United States, uh, we're battling still uh, with the fuel industry for higher blends uh, because we have the capacity. We have the capacity to provide them, but the but the, the fuel industry wants to do all it can to limit us to a, to a 10% blend. The challenge they have is the perception of their carbon and their carbon footprint, and they really can't reduce it without higher ethanol blends. So U.S. policy, I think, is draining right now to, to reconcile the ability to produce lower carbon intensity fuels and then bridge to the future. We have in Brazil the other really significant player, a, a commitment to Renovo Bio, in a very, very significant, almost exclusion of, of petroleum in the, in the future as a goal with replacement with, with biofuels. 
And can the Brazilians pull off that policy uh, successfully, especially given some of the economic constraints uh, that they have around that? And the big oil production they've got coming online. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. The other two major players that are not really forming policy are, are China and India. China has the potential to be a very significant game changer in biofuels policy. They don't have a national policy. They have provincial policies. Enforcement could be either uh, very significant in, 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 in some of the provinces or very lax in others. They do produce their own, they do produce their own corn ethanol, for instance, but corn prices in China are at two times world price. So does it make sense for the Chinese to be converting precious corn? They produce about a billion gallons a year of their own, of their own ethanol. Does it make sense for them to be producing that much at all when they're using corn priced at two times world price? So the Chinese are in the midst of, it's difficult to make call on this because they, they haven't shouted it from the rooftops that they're making a policy change to allow the imports of, of, corn from the Ukraine, primarily the U.S. and, and, and then uh, Ukraine, some Latin America. They've been very ambitious this year in importing corn. They, they could solve a lot of problems for themselves by importing U.S. corn ethanol, which would allow the U.S. corn ethanol industry to meet the domestic uh, mandate. And then since we're up against a blend wall to begin to export. India recently has really stepped up their imports of U.S. ethanol. Uh, India has the same issues that China does that the U.S. Uh, did to the policy was was emanated from the Environmental Protection Agency as a as a clean air as a as a clean air solution and certainly China and India could address both of those. So it, it's an interesting dynamic that we have surpluses in places like Brazil and the United States and and we have potential deficits or potential policy that the Chinese and the Indians adopt that would allow for a significant increase in exports to those destinations. The problem is when, when China and India step into the world markets to buy ethanol, they're doing it on a sort of on an ad hoc trade basis opportunistic transaction. They're not doing it as part of policy. So it can't be predicted. There will not be infrastructure uh, built or logistics secured to produce, you know, enough to meet an export demand until policy changes. We are in a in a really dynamic phase right now on on biofuels, and if the acceptance uh, across the world is that that biofuels have the potential to be a significant bridge fuel or evolve to a sustainable fuel. I think that pressure will be on both China and India to address air quality. And, and it could be really quite an interesting time frame for us as an industry to, to have evolved, to have economics from carbon capture and sequestration, economics from protein, and now the ability to have a world demand for, for both corn, ethanol, and sugar ethanol. So it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's policy. It's policy that that necessarily has to be announced uh, so that it's predictable, and we as an industry could ramp up to meet demand. It's interesting as well. How I'm hearing is that the biofuel bridge fuel 
or even sustainable fuel, to use your term, is more likely to be ethanol than renewable diesel. Again, because of the constraints around feedstock supply that are inherent in that market. Is that a fair take on? It's a very, very fair statement. Corn ethanol is based on the industrial and mechanized uh, production of corn, the ability to harvest it, logistically move it, etc. Indonesian palm, on the other hand, necessarily requires acreage expansion in sensitive areas, and it's a very human labor intensive crop. It is uh, challenged right now. Malaysia is challenged right now in, in total production of palm primarily just due to COVID constraints and, and the human labor to, to harvest the crop. Mm-hmm. Brazil is certainly a powerhouse in, in agriculture and their ability to produce soy is fully mechanized. It's fully industrialized as it is in the, in the U.S. The problem is the, the constraints. People, people don't want to see acreage. Consumers don't want to see acreage expansion in Brazil. So it just lent the one other element that sort of changes the dynamic is the potential of the corn crop to meet greater uh, demand via ethanol is, is 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 in the corn itself, and yields continue to expand. And we're we're nowhere close to realizing the total capacity of the U.S. to produce corn. Uh, the national the national champion last year in in total corn production was at five hundred over five hundred bushels per acre. And uh, the national yield in the U.S. is roughly 180 bushels per acre. Uh, in parts of, of Iowa and Minnesota, we're, we're in the high 200s, 300 bushels per acre. I've been trained by, by an agronomist uh, uh, suggested the carrying capacity of the corn crop is 1,000 bushels per acre. And none of that's available in, as you say, apart from soy, which back to that food-to-fuel debate, well, all the other lipid sources aren't anywhere near that level of intensity and industrialization, right? Right. No, exactly. It would simply be acreage expansion. I've got one more question on what was sort of around policy, and then I just will wrap up on just get your take on the short, medium, and long term on the market. I think we've drawn a lot of that out already. Talking of the blend wall, do you think with the administration change, how likely are we to see an increase in that allowed percentage blend in the next year, couple of years? Two to three weeks ago, I would have said probabilities were quite high. Today, there's we're operating in an environment where we're hearing, we the trade uh, are hearing ideas that um, the Biden administration may revert to policy supportive of, of the petroleum industry and grant small refinery exemptions. It's it's been um, if for those listeners who follow grain markets, we've we've had a phenomenal sell off in the grain markets over the last um, two weeks, and in large part, one of the drivers has been this idea that the Biden administration, which seemed very set on enforcing policy and not granting exemptions to refiners, forcing them to meet uh, their obligations, now seems to be waffling a bit. So it, it's caused everyone to sort of question, well. Where is the Biden administration on on policy and support for for biofuels? So, as I said, a different answer today than I would have given you than I would have given you two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, I would have said this administration probably is going to support the ethanol industry and the entire biofuels industry and in and in, in move towards higher blends. I'm not so certain now. Yeah, it's um, two very powerful lobby groups right at work there. Yes, absolutely. What about Europe? 
they are, they in general have more diesel cars. So obviously, there's a greater focus on renewable diesel. But where do you see? We haven't really touched on European policy as it relates to biofuels. I would say whatever policy is going to be in Europe, they're going to be a, a lesser player in the in the decision making on a, on a world basis because they don't have the the ability to produce at the level that we do in in the U.S. and they don't have this dynamic change as is going on with the California Air Resources Board and and the L, their LCF in support of renewable diesel. What will happen with Europe is they will they will begin, I believe, to ask the hard questions of the U.S. when veg oil prices go to levels that we could see them going to. Uh, Europe has a tendency to, uh, Europe actually was was one of the biggest early on proponents back in the 80s of, of renewable diesel as a, as, a, as a key feedstock and as a source to reduce dependence upon petroleum oils. I think Europe ends up being one of the leaders in the response to California policy because it's it's really California policy that is swamping the veg oil markets. It's really not Europe uh, that is that is the driver today of the world balance sheet. Yeah. Okay. So we could go on for quite some. I mean, it's a fascinating. We could go on for another three hours. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So let's get Walter's predictions. Short term, obviously, there's lots of interest in renewable diesel. Prices are going up. You've just spoken about the short term. It could change quickly with with the administrative, with whatever policy the, um, the Biden administration comes out with around the blend, the ethanol blend. Yeah, yeah. The real question here is ultimately is one of are these going to have a role to play as a bridge fuel, and ultimately EVs are going to crimp demand. Well, electric vehicles and ride share are going to crimp demand and investment in this sector or do you where's the thinking at that right now where 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 are people placing their chips as to the biofuels industry in general it's a great question it's where we are as a as an industry today trying to trying to reconcile the movement of 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 the consumer towards electric vehicles and and the realities of of building out a grid to support that, having the infrastructure, the charging stations to support that. And then and then our role uh, moving forward as a bridge fuel, uh, but as a bridge fuel, the requirements are, are quite significant capex for, for something that's uh, short term. So we're we're stuck trying to decide as an as an industry, as you said, where where to place our chips. I think the reality today is that the consumer has a perception around ethanol, for instance, that may change, as I touched on earlier, especially as we sequester, uh, as we sequester our carbon. And so our carbon footprint overall looks very attractive. The consumer has uh, the same ability to perceive a renewable diesel industry and in, in what it's doing if it's, it's, it's based on waste oils primarily as a sustainable industry. And then it has an opportunity or there is the opportunity for the petroleum industry itself to come to us and to work with us in the in the biofuels industry to paint a better picture of what our overall carbon footprint and our environmental uh, footprint looks like relative to the electric vehicle industry. 
it bothers me to no end that we continue to get sort of an all-in view uh, from states like California that want to know the total diesel consumed by our farmer uh, planting corn seed for the purposes of growing corn. To, that same analysis isn't applied to the electric vehicle production of the of the mine being run anywhere in the world to get uh, products to support battery production minerals that, that may be mined in, in very sensitive uh, areas of the world and, and using labor that isn't paid at the rate that it should be, et cetera. So mm. I think we're still very early in the battle for the consumer's heart. I do believe that the electric vehicle uh, has fascinated people. Uh, people like Elon Musk are, are very, very attractive. I've, I've got I've got a bunch of kids myself, and I note in my kids they're fascinated with uh, with Elon Musk. Uh, so it's it's got a lot of momentum. The ability, what can it produce? Yeah, we'll see how the Ford F one fifty gets taken up in the Midwest. Yes, exactly. That's it. Actually, is that I was going to say that point, but that could be if Ford is successful with the F one fifty, and and so all the folks out here in the Midwest are driving electric F one fifties. That potentially is a real game changer. But is there the grid to support that? And what's the what's the process of building out the grid to support that development? I think one of the things that uh, to, I guess to end on is it seems to me that one of the other big trends that's emerging is, of course, the price of carbon and figuring yeah. out that market. And I think as soon as that becomes more concrete and priced in, you're going to start thinking about ethanol dramatically differently to fossil carb- hydrocarbons because, like we said at the outset, there's a dramatic difference between producing carbon that already exists in the carbon cycle it's not great it should be sequestered it's still you know it's still putting more co2 in the atmosphere but that's dramatically different from unlocking carbon that is under the, in the earth right now and out of the carbon cycle in the form of coal or oil or whatever it might be and i think that's perhaps where the biofuel industry starts to want to really decouple from the energy industry rather than collaborate on solutions um, because those two things might suddenly be priced very differently. Yes, it's a good friend of mine. It says um, the great idea supporting of carbon sequestration is if people are concerned with the idea that, you know, these generations uh, are, are consuming carbon and leaving nothing for next generations, at least uh, in sequestering carbon, we're just putting it right back in the ground so it's there for them in, in the future. So that's an interesting concept. But I don't know that the petroleum and the biofuels industry aren't linked together. It's it's can we develop a common message? Can we tell a common story? And and can we really challenge the electric vehicle industry to, to reveal its all-in carbon footprint versus ours? I, I think that's coming in the future. I, I can I, I think that is going to be an element of the future that the electric vehicle industry is is going to have to explain it's all in carbon footprint if if we have to do that on our side uh, they have to do that on theirs as well yeah i guess we'll wrap up there i, I certainly know that uh, from our side we're seeing a, a lot of interest in biofuels biofuels traders so i think it's a a story that has yet to be written and i think you've given us a, a fascinating and, and compelling overview of the state of the industry today and and where it could go so i thank you very much yeah great my pleasure it's fun Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and human capital, 
a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.